Welcome to the Parsons Nose Theater of the Air, brought to you by your name here. Call us about a sponsorship. Hi, I'm Lance Davis. At Parsons Nose Theatre, we present great works in theatre and literature in short-form adaptations that make them more accessible and therefore more enjoyable to today's fast-paced world. For the next half hour, let's look briefly at the events leading up to America's Declaration of Independence from England in 1776, and then read the remarkable and treasonous document itself. The Declaration of Independence. I used to have a copy in fake parchment that I bought in the gift shop at Independence Hall when I was a Cub Scout in Philadelphia. I had it for years. And though I could barely read the writing with those those Fs um, that looks like Ss, I, I think, um, I knew it was very important. But why? Well, it all started 13 years before in 1763 in Paris, France. The Treaty of Paris was signed, ending the Seven Years' War, which some call the real First World War, involving superpowers at the time, Britain, France, and Spain. In America, we knew it as the French and Indian War, which I always thought was the French against the Indians, but really it was the British against the French, as usual, with Native Americans fighting on both sides. No dummies, they. The British, with their superior army and navy, won, and Spain and France were forced to give up their holdings in America. Uh, Spain had Florida and uh, Canada, um, uh, which is uh, which the, the French had, uh, and the Great Lakes and uh, Mississippi. A punishment that France would remember when it declared support for the new nation in 1778. So. That was 1763, the Treaty of Paris. It's 1764, and thanks to their victory, the British are quite full of themselves and also deeply in debt, almost bankrupt. How to pay for the war? Who should pay for the war? Well, the American colonists, of course, who benefited the most because now they didn't have to worry about outsiders. And some colonists began to think, yes, outsiders, including you. So, in 1765, British Parliament signs the Stamp Act, giving its American colonies a brilliant new tax, put on all legal documents, pamphlets, brochures, letters to grandma, an official stamp, a lovely thing, to be approved by a stamping commissioner who instantly became a very unpopular guy in America. In Boston, this fellow was Andrew Oliver, a wealthy Boston-born merchant, uh, also in Boston, the Sons of Liberty, a new rebel band that embodied the spirit of many, including such patriots as Sam Adams, the brewery owner we've all come to love, John Hancock, who was also a tea smuggler, apparently, Benjamin Rush and Paul Revere, 
who met and said, no, we don't, we don't, we don't, no, we don't think so. This, this tax, no. No one asked us. We didn't agree to it. And they sent a message to Oliver that if he knew what was good for him, he'd meet them one night uh, at the Liberty Tree, a famous elm tree meeting place near Boston Common, and resign. For emphasis, they hung his likeness from that tree. And being a Harvard man, Oliver quickly got the point and resigned his commission. And the fledgling Sons of Liberty realized they had influence. Sure enough, in 1766, the Stamp Act was rescinded by Parliament. But just to show who was boss, they immediately passed the Declaratory Act, affirming England's right to tax the colonies. And sure enough, a year later, in 1767, the Townsend Acts were passed. Again, without input from the colonies, these were the brainstorm of Charles Townsend, a chancellor of the Exchequer under George III. It was a tax on all American imports, all the British things England thought we couldn't possibly provide for ourselves and we all wanted. China, glass, lead, paint, and tea. This was going to bring in a fortune saving the British government, and in particular, the foundering East India Tea Company. Benjamin Franklin had told them, we don't really need your tea. We have Dutch tea, and uh, we can make our own uh, stuff for the other things. Boycotts were organized. Colonists in Massachusetts, New York, Connecticut, and Rhode Island all swore to boycott British goods for one year. And just to make sure, they enforced the boycotts with raids on British loyalists just to discourage them. Now we're at 1769. The British are astonished and want to put the colonies in their place to, to dominate the battle space, as it were. 2,000 British troops are sent to Boston, a town of only 16,000, to quell any boycotts and vandalism. Well, this angers the colonists even more. Tensions mount yet again. And in the next year, in 1770, we have the Boston Massacre. On the evening of March 5th, a group of frustrated and probably drunk colonists start throwing snowballs at Hugh White, a British sentry who's guarding the British Customs House on King Street in Boston. It escalates, and he sends for reinforcements who not only show up, but fire on the mob. And Crispus, uh, Crispus Attucks, Crispus Attucks uh, a mixed-race stock worker, is the first to die for what would later become the American Revolution. There is a trial, and the officer is set free. Back in England, the Townsend Acts are rescinded, however, except for the tea. In America, anger remained over any taxation or laws being imposed without consent. The boycotts continued. In December 1773, American-made but British-owned ships, the Dartmouth, the Beaver, and the Eleanor, holding 42 tons of tea, are sitting in Boston Harbor. The colonists refuse to allow them to unload. The British government, nearly bankrupt, refused to take them back. The colonists feared the temptation for British loyalists might be too great, so on the night of December 16th, on Griffin's Wharf, 342 chests of English East India tea are dumped into Boston Harbor by the Sons of Liberty, including 16 teenagers, disguised as Native Americans. A signal was being sent to the British and to fellow colonists. 
that America, unlike other colonies, was a distinct entity to be reckoned with. The reaction to the Tea Party, John Adams was thrilled, George Washington and Benjamin Franklin, who believed in the sanctity of private property, were appalled. In 1774, England answers by clamping down with the four coercive acts known as the Intolerable Acts by Americans, by which one, England appointed its own Massachusetts government, replacing our elected one. Two, England closed Boston Harbor till the destroyed tea was paid for. Three, England declared capital offenses by British officials were to be tried by British judges, either in the colonies or in England at their discretion. Four, England demanded British troops could be quartered in houses whenever deemed necessary. This was unacceptable and raised the stakes yet again. There were more tea parties, though smaller, in Maryland, New York, and South Carolina. And on September 5th, a group of delegates from each of the colonies met in Carpenter's Hall in Philadelphia as the first Continental Congress. They affirmed that America was to be considered a distinct entity, that there should be no taxation without representation, and the boycotts would continue. 1775, on the night of April 18th, 1775, immortalized in Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's poem, Paul Revere's Ride, on the 18th of April in 75, hardly a man is all of it, British troops set out from Boston to Concord to seize a stockpile of colonial arms and ammunition. By morning, they had reached Lexington, where they were met by 70 colonists who had been alerted, and a shot was fired. No one knows who fired it. The shot heard round the world. Both sides opened fire. Eight colonists were killed, one British redcoat. The British continued on to Concord, where at the North Bridge they were met again. This time, two colonists and three British dead. The British retreat to Boston. The word went forth. The American Revolution against tyranny had begun. The Second Continental Congress convened in Philadelphia. In 1776, the newly formed government boldly declared to the world that the United States of America were now independent from their mother country and open for business. It was its own nation, forming its own constitution, its own laws, its own ability to declare war and conclude peace, through a power derived not from divine right of kingship, but from the consent of the people governed. The match was lit and touched the fuse that would ignite the world. A Declaration of Independence in Congress, July 4, 1776. The unanimous Declaration of the 13 United States of America. When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires 
that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer, while evils are sufferable, than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies." and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. It has refused his assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained, and when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time after such dissolutions to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers incapable of annihilation have returned to the people at large for their exercise, the state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states 
for that purpose obstructing the laws for naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of lands. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. He has kept among us in times of peace standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. He has affected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation. For quartering large bodies of armed troops among us, for protecting them by a mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states, for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, for depriving us in many cases of the benefits of trial by jury, for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses, for abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule in these colonies, for taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments for suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny already begun, with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages and totally unworthy the head of a civilized nation. He has constrained our fellow citizens, taken captive on the high seas, to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands. He has excited domestic insurrections amongst us, and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. In every stage of these oppressions we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Nor have we been wanting in attention to our British brethren. We have warned them 
from time to time, of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our emigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations, which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They, too, have been deaf to the voice of justice and of consanguinity. We must therefore acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace friends. We therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions do in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. This is Lance Davis. Thank you for listening. For more about Parsons Nose and to support our work, please go to parsonsnose.org and make a donation if you can. Thanks so much. <laughs>